Welcome to the next episode of Perspectives, Women in Securities Finance podcast. This is Marnie McCabe. I'm the co-head of the Global Securities Lending Program at Brown Brothers Harriman. I'm coming to you from my room in Charlestown, Massachusetts. I am really thrilled to be hosting this next podcast. I think Women in Securities Finance has obviously been very focused on gender diversity, but diversity and inclusion and creating a inclusive workplace goes much more beyond gender differences. And so today I am thrilled to be introducing you to two of our male members who are bringing their own story to the idea and the importance of diversity in the workplace. So Mike, why don't I hand it off to you for a quick introduction? Yeah, thanks, Martin. And obviously, thanks to Women in Securities Finance for all you do for our industry from a visibility standpoint and for having me here today. Just a quick introduction. Marty mentioned my name is Mike Daly. I am a relationship manager for the Goldman Sachs Agency Lending Program here in Boston. I've been in the industry for, uh, geez, almost 15 years. And just before I started with Goldman in January of this year, I had the opportunity to work with Marnie and Donovan at Brown Brothers Harriman for my entire career up to that point. So I was there for 14 years, which is great and, and hard to believe. We'll get into this a little bit, but I am a gay, cisgendered, white male. So we'll talk a little bit about all of those things, I'm sure, at some point. I'm married to a very handsome and wonderful man, John, and, and really excited to talk about a lot of the perspectives that I have uh, being who I am in the industry and what that means for the industry as well. Thanks, Mike. Great introduction. And Donovan, hand it off to you. Please introduce yourself. Sure. My name is Donovan Brown. I've been with BBH for 13 years now. I currently lead our business development effort for the securities lending product in the Americas, reporting into Marnie and had the pleasure of working with Mike while he was here at BBH. As undergrad, I attended Tufts University where I earned my bachelor's degree in economics. After working for a few years, I returned back to the classroom where I earned a master's in international finance and banking from the Fletcher School at Tufts University. I'm the youngest of four, shout out to my amazing parents as well as my siblings. I'm married. My wife is a portfolio manager, bond trader, and research analyst. So lots of finance talk in our household. And we also have two kids. We have a nine-year-old daughter and a seven-year-old son. And we also got a pandemic puppy who's now part of the family named Maisie. Thanks, Donovan. You know, obviously a little bit of a trend here. We all have worked together at some point over the years, and I've really enjoyed both my personal and professional relationship with both Mike and Donovan. Mike being a gay man, Donovan being a black man, they have both opened my eyes to what it is like to be gay, to be black in our industry. And we have shared a lot of the same emotions and a lot of the same sentiments, and we share the same passion for the need and the importance of diversity. So why don't we dive in, guys? You know, I think we have a lot of topics that we want to cover here. Donovan, I'll start with you. Can you just speak quickly about how you ended up in the financial services industry? Yeah, sure. You know, mine was really a story of right place, right time. So coming out of undergrad, I had my sight set on Wall Street. I was headed to New York, take the world by storm. I recall being a finalist in a online analyst program at a large bank and ultimately coming up short. It was a group interview where I interviewed and pitched a stock to the entire room. So three interviewers and three other candidates. And I nailed the pitch. I thought I did. But when I was asked about the last traded stock price, I froze. I stood there silent. 
And after a few seconds, just muttered, I don't know. And then they asked me to sit down. That stung for a while. There's actually a quote from former President Barack Obama that I reflect on and I think about that moment is, you can let your failures define you, or you can let your failures teach you. And that moment taught me that preparation is completely subjective. I thought I'd prepared enough, but as I re-examined that experience, you know, I was definitely caught off guard. And since then, I've thought about those moments where not only preparing for the moment, the questions, but also thinking about the potential unknowns and what other variables could be thrown in, preparing for that as well. So this fast forward to answer your question, Marnie, after this disappointment, I was at a Red Sox game with my brothers and sister, saw somebody who I consider a mentor to me in the audience. And I knew he used those tickets for business and I could tell he was engaged in conversation, kind of went back and forth and hesitated, ultimately decided to go up to him and say, hey, just wanted to say hi while I'm here. And he happened to be sitting next to a BBH senior executive. We spoke briefly and then he gave me HR contact information, which I used to submit an application. Uh, so had I not taken that time to speak to my mentor, Tom, I wouldn't have ever known about Brahma's retirement. So the fact that Tom was at the same game and happened to be sitting with somebody from BBH, definitely right place, right time. And by the way, I still save that email from that bank telling me that I would not be advancing. And I look at it regularly as a great motivator and the reminder of importance of preparation. I totally agree with karma and being at the right place at the right time. And Tom, if you're out there, I am grateful because Donovan is a total rock star. Mike, how about you? Tell us a little bit about how you ended up here. Yeah, I would like to think that it was, you know, a planned out and critical thinking type of exercise. But really, it was a little bit simpler than that for me. I was an econ major, much like Donovan. That doesn't necessarily always translate into financial services or, or Wall Street or whatever you want to call it. But really, I was approached by a family member's friend and said, hey, there's a really great bank in Boston called Brown Brothers Harriman. I think you'd be a really great candidate for an internship there. And I said, all right, great. You know, here's my resume. And I wrote a cover letter along with my resume. And somehow along the way, I was accepted into the BBH internship program. This was back in 2006, not to date myself a little bit. And I got placed in the securities lending program as one of their four interns for the summer. And really, I loved it enough where I was offered a job in 2008, started in July of that year, and slowly progressed my way through the BBH securities lending organization. And that's really how I made it into financial services and you know, must have been doing something right and loving my colleagues enough that I stuck around for 14 years. Yeah, it is amazing how securities lending in this industry just kind of sucks you in. It's so dynamic. Yeah. You're always learning something new. I can definitely appreciate with both of your stories, very similar to mine, which I won't bore anyone with at this point. So let's kind of get into the meat of the conversation. I understand how you ended up here, but you know, I think the financial services industry has a reputation of not only being a bit cutthroat, but also being male-dominated, and quite frankly, white male-dominated. Mike, when you were thinking about life after college, did you have any hesitations around entering the financial services industry? Yeah, it's a really interesting question, Marnie. And I think I can maybe get into some background in terms of my own personal story, which will hopefully help answer the question a little bit. 
you know, as I mentioned, I entered the financial services industry when I was 19 years old, 20 years old, whatever it was. In college, I was not out of the closet at the time. I actually wasn't out of the closet when I started at BBH either. And that really wasn't just in my professional life. That was my personal life as well. You know, when I graduated from small liberal arts college in Massachusetts, from everyone else's point of view, I was another, you know, straight white male. And that's how I was when I entered into the financial services industry and at BBH. So I think, you know, we can talk about how comfortable I was after the fact and what that meant for me. But there was really no, I'd say, decision-making on my part or, or discomfort there because I was just like everybody else, so to speak, when I entered into the workforce. That certainly progressed over the years. And I think a little bit of my own personal journey was mixed into my professional journey, if that makes sense, which I think is a little bit different than maybe some other people who are entering into the financial services industry later on in life, or maybe as an out person coming into the workforce or into an organization. But you know, in general, I would say there really wasn't much hesitation on my part because I really wasn't thinking about it to begin with. And again, not to say that we didn't get there eventually and that there weren't some hesitations down the road, but it wasn't the first thing that I was thinking about from a personal standpoint when I entered into the workforce. Yeah. And it's a really interesting point, Mike, because, you know, when I'm looking at you day in and day out, you are, you are a white male. Yeah. But there's more underneath all of that. Yeah, and, um, and I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about it. And, and Donovan, I would love to hear Donovan's perspective. But, you know, yes, I'm a gay man. But to everybody, in terms of how I present, I'm a straight white male for all they know. And there's, a, I recognize that there's a lot of privilege that comes with that. And we can talk about that. But I would love to hear Donovan's perspective in terms of how that differs from my own personal journey. Yeah, thanks, Mike. And for me, I didn't have any hesitations. I think it's a couple of things. You know, I went to a private high school where I was one of four black students in a class of 100. I then went to a university that was in 2005, less diverse than it is now. I remember being able to count the number of black students pretty easily. I'm really fortunate that my parents instilled in me a very strong sense of confidence at a very young age. So whether it was high school, college, or now in my professional life, I've typically felt pretty comfortable in my own skin. I would say that confidence and that comfort grew over time, but it certainly started with my parents really telling me and raising me to be very proud of who I am. So it's something that I'm cognizant of in terms of being one of few, but something that never gave me pause or hesitation in terms of my professional aspirations. Wow. Donovan, I want to spend some time with your parents. That's amazing. It's really amazing. Very lucky. Mike, going back to you quickly, I want to dig into something you said a little bit, because I remember 10 years ago when you came out to me, it was such an incredible, incredible experience for me personally. And it was such an incredible point in our professional and personal friendship. But I also remember that we ended that conversation with you asking me to keep it to myself. You said you were not comfortable going beyond our relationship and making this public across the BBH Securities Lending Group and organization more broadly. Can we dig into that a little bit? Why did you have that sentiment at that point in time? And then more importantly, totally changed now, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'd love to get your point of view there. I think it's important. Yeah, I think that's a jam-packed question, Marnie, and I'll try (laughs) to answer it as best I can. I think there's a couple different factors, right? I think one you know, a lot of it was personal journey. I was slowly coming out to everyone in my life, not just, you know, people at work. And I think you were a comfort for me. And I think I knew that I could, you know, trust you with this information and trust that you would keep it to yourself while I continued on my journey and 
opening up to my colleagues. But I think there's a really important aspect of this, right? And I think you touched on it a little bit, right? Financial services has a reputation, not always, but it can tend to have a reputation of being very male-dominated, testosterone-filled, so to speak. And when you're an individual coming out of the closet, that's a very scary thing for a lot of different reasons. But I think that's a very scary thing to come out to your colleagues in this type of industry, because you're not sure how you're going to be received in your workplace. And you have to be with these people 40 plus hours a week, five plus days a week. It's a lot. And you want to make sure that you're doing it in a measured way and that you want to be as comfortable as you can personally as you possibly can. And I think when I look back at not necessarily BBH, not singling them out, but that's my experience, you know, 14 or 10 years ago, however long it was, Marnie, it was a very different place back then. And not just BBH, but the industry was a very different place back then. A lot of organizations didn't have DEI groups or pride groups, whatever you want to call it. BBH did not at the time. It was either in its infancy or you know, just getting off the ground. And there really wasn't this visibility present for me. I didn't have any role models that I could look up to and say, hey, he or she did this really well and they're just fine. They exist now, but they weren't really there for me back then. Or maybe I wasn't necessarily looking for them right at the time. So it was scary for me. And I knew that I could trust you as one person. And I was slowly able to do it the way I needed to and kind of slowly introduce people to you know, who I was as a person. And I think I was actually, before this call, I was, I was trying to come up with a couple different stats that would really paint this picture. And I came across a Boston Consulting Group article. I think it was a survey that was done a couple of years ago, but I think a lot of the stats are still prevalent. And I was actually shocked to read the stat. And this is actually within a couple of years, not, you know, 10, 15 years ago. It's that 40% of LGBTQ plus individuals who identify that way are still closeted at work today. And that's not just in financial services, that's across the globe and across the 2,000 people that BCG surveyed. But I thought that was a very, very interesting stat. And it kind of shows you that there are still a lot of barriers for people to come to work as themselves. And I was feeling a lot of that back in you know, 2010 or whatever it was, Marnie. And I think that's kind of why I approached it that way and kind of why it happened the way that it happened. I'm so glad you did. And I'm so glad that you found that trust in me because, you know, there's part of me that feels like I've been on this journey with you since mm -hmm. then. I mean, gosh, Mike, it's been 10 years since then, since yeah. that time. And I have been so fortunate to have been on that journey. That first time you referenced your boyfriend, that mm -hmm. first time you referenced your husband, whether it be internally at work or in front of a client, it has been a really proud moment for me watching you evolve and gaining comfort around bringing your whole self to work. And that's a lot of the work you did on yourself, but I'd also like to think it's a lot of the work that the industry is doing to create a more acceptable and inclusive workforce. We yeah. have a lot of work still ahead of us, but it was definitely an incredible moment. And sometimes Mike, you and I laugh about this, but it's not really that funny because when you did come out to me, my initial thought was just so happy to know that you had found someone that you loved and you were planning to spend the rest of your life with. My second thought was thinking about all the times that I had been trying to set you up with female friends and <laughs> yeah. how, but you know, I mean, we can laugh about it, but I also laugh about it in the most horrifying way that I myself who pride myself on being inclusive was taking your preferences mm -hmm. 
based on face value of what you looked like. And I was not aware enough to realize that there might be something else going on there. And so it's, it's, it's really was such a significant moment for me personally, as well in my own journey and my own awareness. And it's a great point, Marnie. And that's one of the reasons why, and look, it's, it's an evolution, right? You know, I've had my whole life to figure out how I want to handle this and, and how I want my life to go. And I think in your defense, that was maybe the first time that you had such a close contact that was going through something like this, right? So you were learning just as much as anybody else was learning in this process. And one of the things that I've really tried to do as I continue to get more comfortable with who I am as a person is attempt to be as visible as I can for others who may be going through the same thing, because I hope that somebody in financial services industry or securities lending, you know, outside of Goldman or outside of BBH or outside of any of our organizations will say, oh, hey, I know Mike Daly and they may want to reach out to me and ask me a question or ask how I handled something. And hopefully I can be a visible person in the industry for somebody to kind of look up to in certain ways. And that, that's kind of what I've always tried to do where I can. And that's why this conversation is so important and so well aligned with the Perspectives podcast series, because it is the ultimate mission of women in securities finance, right? To ultimately create a more inclusive and diverse workforce for our industry. Yeah, well put. Donovan, you and I also had a very meaningful conversation, probably a little bit more recent than Mike's and mine. You and I are having our standard one-on-one catch-up, and it was shortly after the murder of George Floyd. I remember going into this meeting with you, wanting to open up our relationship and our discussion, and also equally curious to know how you were doing as a Black man and everything that was going on within our country, particularly around the George Floyd killing. And I remember being nervous. I remember not knowing how to approach you in this conversation. And I'm so glad I did, because again, you opened my mind wide that day and through that conversation. But Donovan, I'd love to get your perspective though, you know, again, priding myself on being such an advocate of diversity. Why are people nervous to approach you? What do you think's going on that isn't allowing us, particularly in the workforce, to have those really honest and raw conversations like the one we had that day? Yeah. And Marnie, I'm glad we had that conversation. I think it helped build our personal relationship greatly. But I think the main reason is cancel culture, right? I think these days, people are quick to call out as opposed to invite people in to conversation when there's an issue or a challenge. And now to be clear, there's certain things that are just simply out of bounds, right? Certain words or phrases that have a specific meaning or connotation that are unmistakable in terms of what that individual is trying to convey. But I do think and have heard that the same refrain when it comes to discussions around race, especially in the workplace, which is, I just don't want to say the wrong thing. We've got to get past that. I know it takes courage, and that's why they're called courageous conversations. But I think a sense of human decency and coming into a conversation with the desire to understand and the ways you can avoid saying the wrong thing is human nature, right? I think it's a case of what I've understood to be intent versus impact, right? Intent is what you have in mind or the goal you have when you decide to take an action. It reflects the impact you want to create with your actions. But the impact, right, is the result of those actions. Intent to me is who you are. Impact is what you did. 
So when you come into a conversation, you state your intent. What follows from there can be easily tied to your intent and then helps frame the conversation for your audience. So even, you know, in certain examples, even if you felt good about your intentions, it won't necessarily stop someone from being upset, which is the impact. So when there's a misstep, instead of leading with your intent of that's not what I meant and becoming defensive, I think a good example might be to say, I'm sorry, my intent was X, but it seems that I've impacted you in a negative way. Can you help me understand why you feel the way you do and perhaps a way to convey my intended message? And to me, that demonstrates an acknowledgement of the negative impact that those words fell on someone or those actions, how they fell on someone, and the actual desire to reach that intended goal. Now, I think what it does is it creates a situation where you're engaging from common ground. It's really easy to get defensive, which is the worst possible outcome. Then people associate that experience of that difficult conversation and revert back to what I think is lazy excuses or phrases like, well, I can't say anything anymore. I think there's a concept of also common language where, at least when, as it relates to race, we're understanding the terms that should be used to describe what is something that's most often personal for people and often a traumatizing subject matter. I think understanding what those common phrases are and, and really wanting to understand that common language can help navigating those conversations much, much easier. Wow, Donovan, that's so powerful. So powerful. You know, two things for me come to mind. You know, one, again, I'm so grateful for what you two have taught me as we've gotten to know each other and had these powerful conversations. But also, I often use both of you as a guide on what is right, what is wrong, what's appropriate, what is the right terminology. To your point, Donovan, we have to have those conversations. And because the intent to improve and create awareness is there. That has to be the underlying goal. And I reflect oftentimes on experiences that I've had where a sexist comment may have been made while I'm in the room. It happens more times than I think people would like to realize. And I don't think the intent of the comment is to be sexist, but in fact, it is because of lack of awareness. And we have to be better at not challenging those comments, but educating, using it as an opportunity to educate, to create awareness. So yeah, really, really powerful, Donovan. Thank you. Maybe before we even move on from that, I mean, I didn't even know what Donovan was going to speak about when he answered that question. And everything he said is applicable to so many of us. I mean, we're all learning together. And I think that if you can just apologize, if you make a misstep and learn from it and want to educate yourself on different things, we're all going to be better for it. And I actually think it just shows how powerful women in securities finance is, especially with the intersectionality of all of the people of the membership that, you know, exist around the globe. So important. Absolutely. And Mike, I'll give you a quick example of something that may be common, at least within black and brown people, but maybe not across the globe. I can't tell you how many times after saying something or after meeting someone has said to me, you're so articulate. And so what the intent or what that person is trying to say, my guess, right, is I enjoyed hearing you or I thought what you said was profoundly insightful. What I hear is I thought a lot of likes, ums, you know what I mean, and garbage was going to come out of your mouth man, you speak very well for a black person. That's what I hear every single time I hear that 
that sort of refrain. And so it's, it's hard because sometimes, and I've had this conversation multiple times, it's hard not to be defensive, but I also understand it's hard for people to understand, hey, I was trying to give you a compliment. Why are you getting so upset or worked up about it? But now I've taken the approach of saying, well, thank you, but what did you mean by that? And when they explain it, say, okay, I appreciate that compliment. However, this is how this impacts me. This is how your words fell on me. And if you're not sure, if you have other people in your life that look like me, ask them. And I'm pretty sure they're going to tell you the same exact thing in terms of how that specific phrase falls on people. And the hope is that if you really mean, hey, I appreciated what you said, leave it at that. It's just this phrase of, hey, you are so articulate that is sort of to me like a dog whistle where it does not feel good when I hear that. And I don't think that's people's intent when they said it to me. Similar to kind of Donovan when I get the, I don't know how you do it. <laughs> do, do what? Be a working mother. I don't know. How do you do it? Working dad. <laughs> I do it the same way you do. Every day, wake up and just try to get to the other side. Um, but no, I think, you know, both of your points are very well taken. We are on this journey together. Your comments apply to everyone, regardless of the color of your skin, your preference in sex, your gender. We're all on this journey together and we need to learn from each other. Let's switch a little bit to where we can be better, because I think ultimately that is the end goal. I know from my relationship with the two of you that you have been actively involved in various affinity groups looking to make change in the workplace. Mike, maybe I'll start with you. What role do you think these sort of groups play and how are they making us better? Yeah, no, it's a great, great question, Marnie. I can speak from my experience at BBH and my involvement, you know, within the BBH Pride Network and the leadership team there, you know, we spent a lot of time, years, essentially working towards the survey called the Human Rights Campaign Equality Index that a lot of companies around the globe and in the U.S. strive to attain 100% score based on a lot of different factors in terms of how they treat their employees, their policies, their healthcare benefits, you know, everything that that spans the gamut from various areas. And there were a couple different areas that the firm was working to improve. One of those big areas was healthcare and counseling benefits for transgender people or people transitioning or wanting to transition. And the Pride Network really spent a lot of time advocating for certain benefits, making the business plan for it, and really demonstrating to the organization why it was a critical necessity to get across the line. And that was just a small part of what the BBH Pride Network did. And there are very similar things happening here at Goldman in terms of making sure that all of their employees feel like we are included, looked after, supported. And that happens in a lot of different venues and, and areas across the workplace. So I think they're making sure that the organization is well aligned with the employees and the employees' needs is critical. And I think by getting involved in these different groups, it really just shows support for the groups, for the employees, it demonstrates to organization leadership that they're necessary and that certain changes may be needed as things evolve in the future. And I think that's kind of the most critical component to it. Thanks. Yeah. 
Yeah, I agree. I mean, these affinity networks play a really incredible role within our organizations and really are a driving force of change. Donovan, given all this, why do you think our industry continues to be challenged when it comes to attracting and hiring more diverse talent? I think change is hard for almost everyone, right? No matter what that change is, it as humans, I think change is really hard. It's hard to admit that the way you've done something needs to be restructured, especially when it's to the detriment of the majority. As we mentioned earlier, our industry is one that's dominated by white, cisgender, heterosexual males. And Mike brought it up earlier. I'm glad he did. Cisgender is a new term for some of our listeners. It essentially refers to a person whose sex matches the sex the doctor assigned them at birth. Quick side note, while I was doing my research, I came to understand that cisgender does not mean straight because it refers to a person's gender, not their sexual identity. So I definitely learned something. But back to your question, though, Marnie, I think it's a result of the industry's skew towards white heterosexual males, which means our leadership is largely comprised of the same demographic. You know, I look at from a statistics standpoint, a 2021 study done by the Society for Human Resource Management found that Black professionals make up only 3.2% of all senior leadership executives and less than 1% of all Fortune 500 CEO positions. I think there's a struggle because those who are currently in power want to stay in power. And for us to realize any change, that leadership needs to be diverse. It's really a zero sum game if you think about it, right? The people who are responsible for selecting leaders in their respective organizations need to take a look at the candidates who don't look like them, who may not share their exact same identities, and be willing to make decisions that go against what has traditionally been the norm. At the conference, you know, you and Brooke talked about the trope that she's just not qualified. Well, how do you know she's not qualified if she's never been given the opportunity? I think that promoting and incorporating diversity into a company's philosophy, and not just in the performative way, a real honest effort, and then highlighting those outcomes from diverse teams is something we can do better. Simply understanding that people have different paths to success in a way that's accessible to all employees will help everyone feel included, accepted, and most likely get the best results out of those individuals. The simple acknowledgement that everyone has different challenges and spending time to understand that dynamic and how to address those challenges can really create an environment where you get the best performers and the people that you've interviewed and ultimately accepted into your organization, you're getting the best out of them. You know, One of the things that I keep coming back to is in order to do diversity, you have to do diversity. So that means not just saying things or creating steering committees or appointing a DEI director and then pushing all that work on an individual. It means walking the walk, not just talking the talk. That means personal investment from the top of the house all the way down. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Donovan. And I do think that's where this industry and others struggle. In the last Perspectives podcast, there was one item that really resonated with me. And it's this idea of getting to know individuals and the impacts that they have outside of the workforce. It can't just be about solving within the workforce. You have to look beyond that. And I think that's, I mean, again, I keep going back to this, just the awareness that we've all shared and taught each other. That's half the battle. I mean, gosh, Mike, I've met John multiple times. I was at your wedding, right? Donovan, your wife, your kids, I've gotten to know them as well. And it's helped me understand the influences you both have outside of the workforce. And in doing that, I'm hoping it allows you to feel like you can bring more of your authentic self to the workforce. And that is only going to create 
a more inclusive and comfortable environment. Yeah. And Marnie, just one other point there. I think in order to retain and attract new talent, you know, the younger generations, they're asking these questions. Do you have a pride network? Do you have a black affinity network? What are they like? What do they do? Right? Younger individuals are much more clued in to a certain extent on some of these things, which is amazing. But I think in order to attract and retain those individuals to financial services, all of our firms need to continue doing what they're doing and hopefully do it better as things evolve to really make sure that people want to work here. Yeah. Well, forget about the affinity networks. What percentage of your senior leadership is black? Yeah. What percentage of your senior leadership is women? I mean, these questions are being asked and the answers are determining where, you know, the younger talent wants to spend and develop their career. I couldn't agree more. I think the worst thing our industry could do is implement goals around diversity, force them to be met, but then the individual and the firm fails if you're not backing those people and making sure that they are ready to develop their career. Okay, I think we're rounding out the time here. Maybe I will just ask each of you one last question. What advice would you give your younger self entering this industry, entering the workforce? Mike, I'll start with you. Be brave, be honest, be yourself. What do you have to lose? I mean, people probably won't say something negative to your face. I'm not saying they won't, but hopefully they'll be at least polite if they don't necessarily agree with what you're saying. But it's your life. As long as you're being respectful to others and to yourself, you know, why wouldn't you be brave? And obviously do it in the context of how comfortable you are with yourself. But I think that if I had to do it over again, I would have hopefully been more comfortable with myself earlier on. And being open and honest at work, again, to the extent that you feel safe and you feel comfortable doing it, it just makes you a much better employee. You aren't constantly worried about misstepping or saying the wrong thing or you know, slipping that you went to dinner with your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your husband or your wife when somebody didn't know that you had that person in your life. You just stop worrying about all those things when you are honest with others. So again, to the extent that you feel safe and comfortable, I would just give myself that advice much earlier on than I did. Love it. Donovan? For me, I would say meet Marnie McCabe sooner. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> uh, it's been a great experience. But now, aside from that, I would say a couple of things. No, what Mike said is really important. Be authentic. Be yourself. There was a part of me that for a long time thought, as I entered the front door of BBH, everything personal, I need to leave outside. Because when I come in, all I need to do is just focus on the work. That's what's important. The work, the work, the work. And it wasn't until I sort of realized that, okay, people actually want to maybe hear about my perspective, hear that I have a different experience and how what I think informs that experience. That was something that over the last, call it five years, has been somewhat of a revelation for me in terms of the fact that how I've kind of came up in the industry is very different than a lot of other people. And there are some benefits in terms of lessons I learned along the way that I can pass back to people or share with senior leadership that can inform how they think about their teams and their business lines and the growth of those teams in the future. I would also say lean into intellectual curiosity, ask questions, ask questions, ask questions, understanding the why behind what you do and the nuances of your role, and then spending time thinking about how you put that to work will only serve to improve the outcomes of whatever it is you're tasked with doing. My last point would be continuous learning. One of the things I love the most about BBH is access to leadership. I really do think 
at the senior levels, people are pretty accessible when you ask them to be. And what I've taken from all of my experiences with different senior leaders across various business lines is their own framework, but an intellectual curiosity that feeds into that. People who are continuously reading, learning more about their roles, more about their environments, more about themselves. So for me, I've always been a hard worker, but spending time learning as well as doing has helped me to tremendously mature as I've came up through the industry. And Marty, really quickly. I'm understanding my privilege as I talk sometimes. And I said to my earlier self, when you asked that question is I would do it sooner, but I really want to make sure that others understand that there are many gay people around the globe that actually can't come out because it's punishable by law. So let's not forget that that's a huge, huge thing to remember. So I'm very privileged and able to do that and where I sit. Wow. Okay. So what I'm hearing is be brave, recognize your position to create awareness share your perspective, always learn. And I'm just going to round that one out with get uncomfortable, get uncomfortable. Well said. Agreed. All right. Thanks you too. Thanks everybody. Really an incredible conversation. I really love that you were willing and able to come here and share your stories. That rounds out our perspectives. Thank you. Thanks all. Thanks all.